Welcome to Out of the Ordinary, the show that helps you grow a daily life that matters. I'm Christy Purifoy. And I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And friends, I still have a touch of jet lag and a craving for all the foods I ate over the last three weeks in South Africa. Also, elephants, Christy. We swam with elephants. <laughs> Today, friends, we are offering one of those episodes that is as close as we ever get here on the podcast to simply hitting record and talking like old friends as if no one else was ever going to listen in. This is the real thing, and you're invited. So get comfy, friends. Here we go. Christy, it is so good to see you. I'm so happy to be conversing with you here again live on the podcast. And I will tell you something, though. This week was funny for me because I have spent a good portion of this week craving certain foods, getting in my car and thinking, I should go pick that up. And then there's nowhere to get it. Like every meal I have wanted to eat, every snack, every fast food, every drink I have craved this week. It is not possible to get here in America. Oh, no. (laughs) I have been homesick for food this week because I just spent the last three weeks home in South Africa and I literally ate my way Mm. across 21 days of every favorite meal, drink, fast food, restaurant you can imagine. Even the gas station there has certain (laughs) things I like to get and eat. All I wanted this week was a sausage roll from a gas station that I could not get in America. Well, you know I come from the foreign country of Texas, so (laughs) I actually can relate to that. (laughs) I go back so seldom because my immediate family doesn't live there any longer. Um, But yeah, if anything would get me on a plane tomorrow, it would be thinking about the foods I grew up with, the chain restaurants I grew up with that I no longer have access to. So that makes so much sense. Yeah, I've got my list. I mean, there's Bluebell ice cream and there's, I love a good Sonic drive through cherry limeade. Oh my goodness, all these things I don't have in Pennsylvania. <laughs> we literally had like an, a notes app on my phone of places we had to eat and Part of the sadness, like my children will just say out of the blue, now that we're home, I can't believe we only ate at Ocean Basket once. You know, like they're upset that we didn't go to these places more than once. And I guess what was really working in our advantage is the obscene exchange rate right now, Mm. where one United States dollar is 18 South African rand. So we would eat these huge, lavish meals. I mean, at one point, Micah ate... Our favorite seafood place is called Ocean Basket, and they have, they serve the seafood. I really believe they need to start, you know, a branch Mm -hmm. here in the States. I think it would do so well if that franchise came to South Africa because it is like high-end seafood, but at sort of like manageable TGI Friday prices. And so they have what they call these seafood platters. Mm -hmm. It comes to you (laughs) on this big like silver or metal tray, like it's just covered in seafood. And you can have like combination of whatever, like I had king prawns and fillet of fish and uh, calamari and mussels and rice. It's like this beautiful presentation. It's drenched in lemon butter. And the platters are designed for more than one person. 
so you can get like a platter for two. Micah ate an entire platter for two by himself (laughs) and he timed himself because we were on our way to the movies and he didn't want to be late. So in 17 minutes, he inhaled several kilograms worth of seafood (laughs) and it was it was astonishing. And all five of us ate this ginormous meal of like very high end shrimp and prawn and calamari. And it was like $84. It was it was ridiculous. So now my kids will just say, I can't believe we were only at Ocean Basket once, or I really wish all I want right now is like the Steers mushroom burger or whatever. And there's just weirdly certain tastes there's no equivalent for. And what I mentioned earlier is that the gas stations in South Africa, kind of like here, we have gas stations that have Subway or I don't know, Pizza Hut or something. They just have like all these great fresh foods. And, but then I guess you wouldn't describe these as fresh. One of my favorite things is they just have all these different pies. So like Cornish pastries or a chicken pie, or we call them a sausage roll. And they're flaky, golden, crispy pastry crust with whatever processed meat they've put into the center <laughs> of it. But it is like heaven in your mouth. No. I thought for sure my children would love those. That's the one thing they did not embrace with my really? enthusiasm. Yeah. But the, the sausage roll and then South Africa doesn't do ketchup. They have what they call tomato sauce over there. And it's like ketchup, but it's very sweet. It's as if Chick-fil-A made ketchup because now Chick-fil-A has like those (laughs) sweet, sweet sauces. (laughs) And so, yeah, my chicken pot pie or my sausage roll with South African tomato sauce and then a Grenadella twist Mm. soda. So they have those (gasps) sodas that are all these different tastes like Grenadella and mango and passion fruit and just all kinds of things. Guava. That I lemon twist. Uh, oh, ginger beer. Do you have that in the South? Like it's not an alcoholic drink at all. Mm-hmm. It's like fermented raisins. I guess it's made out of. It's very sort of spicy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, oh, man. we do. Um, yeah, John and I like a good spicy ginger beer. Yeah, I, yeah, although I just thought it was made out of ginger. But what do I know? <laughs> well, I guess, yes, I guess it must be. But then why does the South African kind always has random raisins in it if it's homemade? So like it's fermented and has these raisins floating in it. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds Amazing. Like questions I've never asked. I just drink whatever the grandma pours for you, you know, that she's made on the farm. Wow. So all of that to say, I have spent three weeks obviously having deep, meaningful connections with our family. But the thing that has been top of my mind at the moment is how homesick I am mm. for the food already. Mm. So if there was... Okay, so two questions. Number one, what is the best South African flavor that you can access here so that after we listen to this podcast, we can all sort of run out, you know, like when we're reading a good book, like for instance, you and I have been reading the latest Louise Penny and it makes you hungry for certain things. I hope our conversation today makes people's mouths water for certain things. So first question, what is something you can actually access here that does taste like home if there's anything? And then number two, what is the, besides ocean basket yumminess, like what is the the flavor that is so distinctively South African that is just absolutely inaccessible to you here? Those are good questions. I think probably the thing that is very common here now, um, but it's sort of been elevated or it's considered bougie. But I mean, I literally grew up eating this with my father is avocado toast. So that's a very common South African thing. I, I like they tend to elevate it in different ways, just in your home, but you can get it at restaurants too. Like it has to be like the best toast is like a, a rich rye or 
sourdough and it's kind of crispy. And then they have the avocado. And then South Africa, they'll also, oh my gosh, it was so good. I ate this. So we've talked in the past about how South Africa's equivalent of beef jerky is called biltong. It's a dried uh, wild game beef that it's made out of. But it's, in my opinion, <laughs> much better and healthier than jerky. It's really like fresh from the farm. There's no real preservatives. It's so delicious. It's really good for you if you're on like a keto diet. Um, but they also will do, they do all kinds of forms of biltong. So sometimes it's like the dry sticks like jerky. Sometimes it's like the little tubular ones that you can crack in half that are crunchy. But what they'll also do is what they call shaved biltong, where it's like a powder. Like think of pencil shavings. It's that consistency but it's biltong. And if you sprinkle that onto your avocado toast, Ooh, oh, that's outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> so you can definitely do the avocado toast. I don't know if there's a jerky equivalent that I would ever want to put on my avocado toast here, but that's delicious. The thing you can't really access here, I mean, I guess you could. We brought back all the seasonings. So South Africa love what they call a braai which is a barbecue essentially, but they don't, interestingly enough, they're very particular about this. They don't like to cook on a, gra on a gas grill. It's really frowned upon. It's considered that you didn't really braai. So they use charcoal uh, or wood that they, it's essentially a grill that we all have, right? That they cook over. But what's really big there is South African boudavosh, which is farmer's sausage, which is like brats, except it's not cut into pieces, you know, brats are sized. It's just this long, never-ending string of sausage, either thick or thin, that they cook on the coals. And oh man, it is just seasoned out of this world. And then they will always have lamb chops as well. And I feel like chops are not really a thing in America. Like, are they? Like, do we eat beef chops here? I, I feel like we don't. So they'll eat lamb chops and boudavos on the braai, seasoned to perfection. I mean, I can taste still the food my brother cooked when we were at his house. Peter talked about it last night. He was like, I just wish I could go to Josh's house and have some more of that food he cooked for us. So there's something about the seasoning. So weirdly, the day before we leave, we always go to the grocery store and stock up on like their braai salt and their chicken seasonings and their steak seasonings because we just, those flavors are very uniquely South African. Mm, I feel like we need to do our best, maybe this spring or summer, to try to have some kind of shared oh braai experience. <laughs> that would be so fun. Yes, Peter could totally, we could recreate that at your house. We have to, that's happening now. Yeah, that would be, that would be really fun. I also feel like, I mean, there's, you know, I, I don't know. I hope I'm not insulting anyone here because I haven't tasted these things. So I don't really know. I, I think I know what you're describing, but of course I don't know exactly, but it does seem like certain food cultures are connected through immigration, even through, you know, histories of colonization. So some of what you're describing that isn't really a thing in the U.S. sounds to me like things I know from British culinary culture, like meat pies, that's big in the UK, but like we just don't really do meat pies here. Sausages, I mean, we have them and some cultures have more of them than others, but just generally speaking, I feel like sausages are not done very well here. And then, oh, what was the third one? I had a third one in mind. Oh, toast, toast. Yes. Right? Which is so huge in, in the UK. And we don't really, 
Sadly, we don't have much of a good toast culture here in the U.S. So, for example, um, it was just the other day, uh, somebody had woken up in the house, I don't remember which child, one of my daughters, and had toast for breakfast, which I feel like that is a totally acceptable thing to do. And my teenage son, my older teenage son came in, was grumbling about the crumbs or something, and I said, well, you know, so-and-so had toast for breakfast, and he just got a look on his face like, What? That is so lame. Who just has toast for breakfast? And I'm thinking tea and toast. Everyone who's ever read everyone British novel knows about tea and toast. It has to be like real butter and like good jam. And it has to be like a jam that's not like a jelly, like you say here. It has to be like a thick, like a marmalade or an apricot jam or something like in that sort of family that's a little step up from just like the the little plastic container you get at, you know, any kind of breakfast place here. Right. Right. It has to be. I will also say what I had for the first time. I've never had this before, which was surprising to me. I went to several great breakfast places there. Oh, they're just the other thing is South Africa is very beautiful. So they, I thought about you a lot, Christy. They really value beauty. So you're never going to find like a strip mall or like the tiniest little coffee shop you go into or a fast food place are just, they feel elevated. The experience feels elevated. And when you go to a breakfast place, it's always got a farmhouse, like a true farmhouse vibe. It's so beautifully done. Like one of the places we went to, the little pats of butter were actually wrapped, tied with like string around them, like this cute little package of butter came to your table. And at this place, I had the most exquisite latte I've ever had because it wasn't a regular latte. So it was a latte, but sweetened with not milk but condensed milk oh wow. so they like and they what they do is they pour the condensed milk in the bottom and then there's the coffee so when i took my first sip i was like "Ooh, this is terrible and my friend was like what are you doing that's what the long spoon is for <laughs> and then you stir it up and then it's sweetened and flavored yeah. and colored this light creamy color and it tastes like so heaven. good kind of like don't have a, to add any sweetener like a thai coffee or a vietnamese coffee like you can maybe get. i've never had one of those yeah. so i don't know but they Ooh, are they're good. just so excellent yeah so they just everything so i guess transitioning away from food and this won't just be like a food review of lisa joe's but (laughs) as we start the new year like this is where i'm at i got off the plane four days ago we were there for three weeks a large part of me i think is still there but i thought of you often and peter and i talked about this south africans just really value beauty everything is presented in a very beautiful way how homes are set up or malls are designed or gardens or strip malls or your fast food place you like just everything about it feels elevated now the opposite of that is that south africa also has a, a level of poverty that is so extreme and so shocking that the two are in constant contradiction, largely because the people who love beauty have done it on the backs of those who are living in poverty, providing them with the resources to live their beautiful lives. So therein, we were trapped constantly by that contradiction that you have to pay attention to. The beauty isn't always accessible to everyone, but where you see it it's jarring because it is just with such attention to detail. And I wonder sometimes if I lived in California, like, would I experience maybe malls differently than I do here? Peter talked a lot about how America is very utilitarian and how we were driving on the highway, for example, 
between Pretoria, the city where my parents live, and Johannesburg, the city where my brothers live. So when you're on those highway sections, and we have them here in the States, often what you're not, you're not getting houses there, you're getting industry, right? So there are companies who have like trucking companies or telecom companies or insurance buildings or that kind of business parks. But in South Africa, even the business parks look like parks like it oh. i kept telling peter how are the buildings like this like why are they this beautiful and peter just kept saying you would just never see this in america because you could not justify the expense it would be considered a complete waste it would make the endeavor you know not feasible but south africa again that is much of it built on the backs of you know very low wages a huge population that for centuries has been taken advantage of and not to say that applies to every company we were watching but it enables a level of beauty and design because of lowered costs that in America you just wouldn't consider worth investing in. So it was constantly this jarring, weird reality of extreme beauty and extreme poverty. And how do you how do you navigate that? Not just as a believer, but as but as a human. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that is such an interesting issue and such good questions, which obviously we won't like solve here in our little conversation. But goodness, I wish more Americans, more of um, well, maybe especially like American Christians, who um, I don't know, would ask these questions like. <sighs> Surely in God's world, it is possible to both cultivate beauty and honor people. And then what does that look like? And and rather than just giving up and never even pursuing the question saying, well, it's impossible or this is how it's always been. Um, it's really exciting to think about just using our imaginations, like a holy imagination to imagine other ways. I know that these are questions I've thought a lot about in my local context, in local community. There's been um, a great recent, in my little town where I live, a great speaker series um, that I got to be a part of that, you know, somebody else started, had the idea, but a placemaking speaker series. And what they've done is in our little community, they've They've had a speaker each month who comes and talks about some aspect of community placemaking, right? And a theme that has come up again and again is exactly this, that in our community where we have a lot of older homes and older infrastructure, we have a lot of beauty because it comes from a time when labor was less expensive. And so uh, it didn't cost as much a community as much to take the time to make a bridge really beautiful with beautiful decorative elements. But now we're living in an age where that feels difficult or impossible. And now we need to replace that bridge. So as a community, people are asking, well, is there still room for beauty? How do we justify it? How do we talk about it as a community? How do we still value it knowing that economic conditions are different? And there's no easy answers, but I don't know, I guess maybe I mentioned, especially for Christians, if we believe that beauty is like one of the I don't know, I call it like one of the languages of God, like one of the ways that God shows himself to us and we respond to him, then um, it can't just be this extra, it can't just be decoration. Um, I don't know. These are, yeah, you know, I could just go on and on about this. So, (laughs) Well, I mean, clearly you and John will need to come to South Africa (laughs) because it is like your country. You would love the weather. It's literally perfect weather. Peter and I just kept saying, what is it? How... 
do they not know like that they live in perfect, perfect climate? Well. There's no humidity. It gets hot, but it's a very dry heat. In the late afternoon, it rains. It doesn't get humid. It just cools down in a lovely way so that in the summer evenings, you could maybe wear a light sweater if you wanted to. I mean, it's <laughs> ridiculous. Okay. Wow. Zoe kept saying, there are no clouds. How is the sky always this blue? I mean, but speaking about community and the relationship between community and then intentional beauty is interesting because one of my oldest friends, and it's, I mean, what a gift to still be friends with someone you've known since you were five. That's how long we've known each other. She lives just literally like two miles from my dad's house. Her name is Dorothy. We've known each other since kindergarten. Our, I've, I mean, literally grew up in her house. She, were, she grew up in my house. And what's so crazy now is that her daughter, who is, I think, a junior in high school, is in the same class as my one of my little sisters. <laughs> so they like know each other. And so I had had Dorothy on my list of people I need to try and see while I'm home. But there's so many people to see. And I got home late one night from having gone out to dinner with my dad. And my boys are at the table and they go, hey, mom, guess who we saw today? And I say, what? Who? And they say, we saw Auntie Dorothy. And I I was like, wait, what? And I guess Lulu, my little sister, they'd taken the dogs for a walk. My boys had gone with and they just walked over to Dorothy's house. And so Dorothy then texts me this photograph of my sons and her daughter. And she goes, look, I can't believe it. Your kids came over today. And I, it was just so amazing. And I said to my boys, wait, what? You got to see her. And it was like, literally nine or 10 already at night. And I said, I'm getting in the car and going over now because that's ridiculous. So I went over late at night to have a cup of tea. That's what we do always tea. And then we had this interesting conversation about community and beauty. So Dorothy has her doctorate in conservation in South Africa, particularly, this is so interesting in conservation of rhinos. And as you probably know, rhinoceroses are an endangered species in Africa. Poachers, you know, have a premium on them. They're very difficult to protect. But what's very interesting is they live on these areas where you have a ton of indigenous people who are traditionally very poor living in these communities, who, if you now fine, you know, put fines against them or jail them or threaten them in any way because you value the rhinos more than the people, the people are tempted to partner then with the poachers and say, well, you value these rhinos more than people. We can make a lot of money if we partner with the poachers. So her entire thesis was written about community engagement. And she has done years of working with local communities to talk to them about the value of the rhinos, to learn what do the communities need for their sustainability going forward? How do we partner with rhino conservation and community preservation in order to get the communities to actually police against poaching because they feel so valued and now they feel like they have a stake themselves in the rhinos because they feel a sense of inheritance in the rhinos' future, a sense in which the rhinos are on their land and so they care about them. It is this incredible story. And she says, anytime you prioritize rhinos over people, you immediately lose out to the poachers. But anytime you tell a story so that the community sees themselves as the most important, they will instinctively then adopt wanting to work together to preserve the rhinos, which they see as part of their own legacy. That's gorgeous. And I, you know, again, as a Christian, one of the things I believe is that Christ is reconciling all things to himself and that as Christians, like to participate in, you know, Christ's life in the world, 
almost always looks like reconciling work. And there's so many ways to do that. And we tend to think of it maybe in very narrow terms, but anywhere um, where there's enmity, where there's division, where we feel like we have to choose one over the other and something good suffers because we're trying to do some good over here. I just feel like, no, no, like, there's got to be a reconciling way. Um, and especially when we're talking about creation, when we're talking about the relationships between, and you know, this is my thing, right? Like between humans and then animals and wildlife and pollinators and our plants and our landscapes, like these things are meant to be in re- in good, healthy relationships. Um, and it's a privilege to like to be involved in work that is fostering that. Um, it's very exciting and beautiful. And I think gets us out of that mindset of like, well, we have to choose. We can't have both. It can either be practical and we can hit our budget or it can look nice and people suffer. <laughs> like, no, no, <laughs> there's got to be a better reconciled way. What a great story of that. Wow. And it- and it takes, I'll just say it takes work. I don't think it's the easier path yeah, in order to point. find that. It's difficult and um, it's challenging. I One of the other stories I'll share of just these insanely out of Africa moments where Peter and I would look at each other and just say, <laughs> is this real? Is this actually happening right now? We went out to an elephant preserve and we met the most amazing people. I mean, you would just have to call them elephant whispers. I don't think there's another way to describe them. It's uh, two families that for three generations have worked with elephants. So it's a white family and a black family. And they actually came originally from Zimbabwe together. So they had been on a farm together. They then moved down to South Africa and these two families and then all their kids and their kids have all worked together with elephants and not, it's not like a circus. They don't train them or tame them. They actually are there to speak for them and then to help provide really rehabilitation because they'll get calls from farmers who say something like there's a rogue elephant we want to shoot it or we want to trank it or we want to move it and then they will actually go and work with these wild elephants to help restructure their behavior to help intervene and talk to the community about what's happening why is there this dynamic it takes time and energy and effort and part of what they do where conservation works hand in hand with tourism in South Africa is the elephants that they've worked with the longest that are part of their preserve. You can come and spend a day having what they call an interaction with these elephants. Christy, wow! <laughs> I feel like this is when you were texting me like, my sons want to be where you are. Yeah, because yeah. It's so crazy. <laughs> I mean, I was there and I still can't believe the things we saw. Like these handlers know these elephants for so long. Elephants live for a long time. They, that memory like an elephant is based on the facts that elephants have this insane recall that's sensory. So for example, when they are introducing you to their elephants, they will tell the elephant your name. So they look, they said all of my children's names, and then they ask you to give the elephant one of your shoes, and they give the elephant the shoe, they let it smell it, and then they put all these shoes in a pile. And then he just says to the elephant, not like in a commanding voice or a special, in a normal conversational tone, give Micah his shoe. And the elephant picks out of this huge pile of shoes, the one that is the smell of Micah, and then hands it 
to him. Oh my God. It is the most insane <laughs> thing. You're like, how does this elephant know? And they said, it's, yes, memory like an elephant is a real thing. And they said they have had elephants on that preserve who had been mistreated by people like 10 years before. And they've had occasions where that person came back onto the farm and have not onto the, it's not a farm, back onto the preserve and have had elephants charge these people because they remember how they were mistreated. But in the same way, they remember the people that love them. And they've worked with elephants who have bad scarring from poachers who've tried to harm them. And so at the end of this day of these interactions with elephants, you know, giving you their shoe or letting you feed them and put your hand like right inside their mouth and stroke their tongue. Okay. Oh like gosh. that was the most freaky thing. <laughs> Touch them. They lie down and you put your head on them and listen to them breathing. They want you to feel how their skin, this is so weird, Christy, it's not hard like leather. It's actually quite soft and blubbery is how it feels for the insulation. It is kind of saggy. <laughs> Then we were invited to come and do this moment that will live forever in my mind is the most beautiful thing I've ever done to swim with the elephants. And they take you out to this huge dam and there's this giant elephant in the water. And then David, who was the elephant whisperer, he just, he's, this, the man just radiated joy. He'd be like, come, 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 come. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? Just walk into the water and we're none of us are wearing swimsuits i'm like in jeans and a t-shirt i thought it would come up to my knees we stepped into this lake and immediately it just dropped down oh, I mean, we were up to our necks i had to hold <laughs> zoe she couldn't stand and there's this elephants are very very big when you're close to them very big and david goes let's swing come here and we're all watching him we have no clue what's happening he goes up to the elephant and talks to the elephant the elephant lifts its trunk up and presents its tusks david grabs onto both tusks and the elephant swings its head so that you have the emotion you get on like a like a a swing, a tire swing over a river and flicks David high into the air and he lands in the water. <laughs> and then David goes, fun, fun, come and calls Zoe first, oh, no. my 11 year old daughter who looks at me. He's like, no, no, <laughs> no. And of course, Micah is like, I'll go. Yeah. And we each had a turn. But I mean, you were like face to face with this elephant and everything in your brain is telling you this is not a safe situation. Like, this is not normal. Why am I holding on to this elephant's tusks that could kill me? And yet the elephant is just in the water, throwing us in the water. We're playing that brushes like scrubbing brushes that you come and wash their, you know, skin with and get out dirt and mud and I'm just standing there with Peter. We didn't sign an indemnity form or a release <laughs> or a waiver. Nothing. Okay. Wow. I'm like, what happens if it stands on you? And he goes, no, the good news is it, it won't break your foot. It will hurt. But they're padding. Remember how I talked to you about the padding in their feet so they can't actually break your bones. <laughs> just hurt really, really bad. <laughs> but I share this to say... These families have literally invested their entire yeah. lives. And we talked with the owner afterwards and there are pictures of him from when he was like 10 with baby elephants. And I was just, I couldn't stop saying how incredible it was, what it was like to be with those men who've grown up with these elephants. And and he just sort of, he said, it's good to be reminded you feel that way. Because for us, it's a lot of work. It's really hard to constantly raise revenue to do this work. These elephants eat like tons tons a day okay <laughs> like to feed them how hard it is and you realize it is beautiful it is meaningful it is really god and his creation working hand in hand with the now adams right 
And yet, and it costs you something. It costs you something. And I think that was the reminder too, like when God invites us to come in and steward his creation, something of us will be required and it'll be sometimes financial or emotional or time or, you know, the job that everyone thinks is really beautiful, but pays very little. Like stewardship I think that's what I was learning. This is what stewardship looks like. And and to come alongside people who are stewarding what God has given them in ways that were so meaningful for us and yet aren't, you know, making them a fortune. <laughs> They're not not growing in like up the corporate ladder. They they were ju- they were stewarding what was given them in such meaningful ways. It was it was I'll just never forget. It, it was life-changing experience for us. Wow, yeah, that's so good to hear. It I it makes sense to me that this kind of reconciling work because it's so powerful and because it's Christ's work um that it isn't something we just do in our spare time. It isn't like <laughs> Yeah. It, it isn't yeah, it's not a hobby. <laughs> it it might cost everything. And actually, and we don't get to do it maybe even in these grand swooping gestures and ways. Instead, we do it and we participate in it. And this is very, this, here we are back, back. This is, you know, a good one for our first live of, of the podcast in 2023. We're back to this. We just do it with all of our ordinary daily yeah. lives and selves. And it's, probably hot and tiring and boring sometimes and you want to give up and it's like oh wait that sounds like my life okay <laughs> like I, I want to be told like oh no there's this better way and it's more exciting and every day feels like an adventure like no right right <laughs> it's the same it's ordinary daily life but like doing it smack dab in the middle of this redemptive work which we're all called to do and right. just maybe we don't all get to do it with elephants which right. would be cool. <laughs> there you go. Yes. I know. Well, I think it'll be fun to continue this in the next episode, guys, where we have it's a two-part conversation here about, you know, I, this first one's kind of sharing some of these fun highlights, and then the second one maybe unpacking some of our observations that take this conversation a little deeper to, to bring back here to you guys, you know, some of what we got to experience and learn, but that I think applies to, as Christy said, our lives here as we think about who we are going into this new year so you'll have to you have to stay tuned for next week because there was a statement my daughter made really about the difference between america and south africa that has just stuck with me in such a profound way and that i hope influences how i think about the calling on our ordinary lives on this side but in the meantime you'll have to go to my instagram and check out i did a bunch of different reels from these experiences and you can see you can see the elephant one on there that i i actually go back christy and rewatch often because it just seems to me like did that did, did that happen, happen? <laughs> seems like that is not okay wow oh so great okay well i can't wait to hear more and um, i hope there's more animals next week yes more animals <laughs> There's always more animals, and I think there'll also be more of the kinds of conversations where I love hearing your insights on some of the things that we are learning. So friends, we'll see you back here next week. 